It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is James Miller II, founder and CEO of Vision Investment Group. James works in partnership and collaboration across diverse groups of people to set strategic direction, foster cross-functional consensus, enable transformation, and attain mission success. Merging extensive C-level leadership experience with a broad and diverse board director background, he guides companies and their leaders in achieving strategic growth. Beginning his career with Weaver Popcorn as Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Revenue Officer, James was selected right out of college from 1,200 applicants to spearhead a $20 million division. In 1996, James was recruited by Nesco, a highly specialized utility equipment company in international telecom and fiber optic, as their first Chief Marketing Officer of North America, adding the title of Chief Sales Director of North America one year later. In 1998, James founded Vision Investment Group, where he served as the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Marketing Officer of Subway Multi-Franchising, where he initially acquired two Subway franchisees with 20 employees and led the company through startup to strategically position his Subway franchise business to grow today's top 25 largest franchises globally with 50-plus locations and 1,200 employees. He grew revenues from $250,000 to over $20 million by acquiring 38 businesses and building 14 new locations from the ground up. James attended Milligan University, where he received his Bachelor of Science in Marketing, Computer Science, and Team Labor. James Miller, welcome into the corner office. Hello again, this is Brian Handley. I'm founder and managing director of ROI Executive Search, and we do retained executive search across the middle market globally. Today's next step uh, in our journey into the corner office, and I'm here to welcome James Miller. Uh, Jim is a board director and CEO of Vision Investment Group, and he works in partnership and collaboration across diverse groups of people to set strategic direction, faster cross-functional consensus, enable transformation, and attain mission success. Jim Miller, welcome into the corner office. Hey, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Oh, great to have you here today. And we spoke about a month or so ago and uh, very excited about this conversation and hearing more about your journey. Uh, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I think you've served up to about 20 different boards of directors and uh, have had great success in the restaurant as well as other industries. So we want to talk all about that. But we kind of like to always start at the beginning. And uh, that is, you know, where you came from, uh, what your early family life was like. Tell us a little bit about mom and dad and brothers and sisters and what part of the country yeah. you grew up in. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. Well, I grew up in rural Indiana on a farm. Uh, my father worked full-time as a farmer as well as full-time as a 
uh, engineer on a, on a wow. local railroad. Uh, my mother was a full-time uh, caterer. She baked cakes oh. and cookies and all types of things like that. Nice. And yet here she is today at the age of 79, and she's continuing to be a full-time uh, baker. And my dad continues her. to work full-time, but not employed, if you will. Right, um, right. Great. That's so fantastic. Brothers, uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two older siblings, and I, I'm so very blessed that even in our younger ages, younger days, I was the youngest. But right. uh, even then, we didn't really nitpick on each other, and we found the value in love and support of one another throughout our, our lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think you'd mentioned uh, in one of our earlier conversations, you're a man of faith. Did you, did you grow up in a Christian home, or did that come later to you in life? I did. Um, both sets of family, from great grandparents on down to my parents, nice. uh, people of faith, people of all say devout faith, truly, especially when you grow up on a farm and you have no control over the weather, Brand. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of prayer involved in will that rain come or, or will that right. rain stop? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, goodness. I love that. And, uh, you know, uh, grew up in a family, went to church often. Um, you know, was it that type of thing uh, in, in the home life? Uh, it was, you know, every yeah. Sunday morning and uh, whether I wanted to go or not, I was I was voluntold to go to church on Sunday night <laughs> and, and church camps and, and Wednesdays sometime. But I look back upon that and it's the most invaluable, I'll say, um, mentoring that I've had in my life, at least from Foundation. adolescence and growing yeah. into an adult. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What were uh, some of the inspirational things that, you know, mom and dad shared with you uh, in growing up, the things that you remember from way back when? I think the biggest, probably the two or three biggest things was you work hard. You know, mm. life is not just supposed to be about roses and, and sunshine and, and rainbows and whatnot. It's, it's right. truly, it's putting in a hard day's work, thanking God for what you have, uh, trying to be your best at being, um, content with what you have, even though, you know, as humans, we all like this or we want that and have desires and wants, but let's start with the basics. Here's what our needs are and they're provided. Yeah. Be thankful for that. Right. Anything on top of that's just a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Gratitude. I love it. Coaches, uh, pastors, teachers that, uh, also had an impression If so any kind of messaging from them. Yeah, there was, you know, a series of, of all of the above. I, I was involved with uh, the only true sport I played in, say, middle school or high school was uh, some track and field, though I played right. multiple types of um, extracurricular sports. I was even one of those chess nerds for a couple of years uh, <laughs> just to develop the mind. But one of my greatest mentors is actually my dad. Oh. Um, my dad was in the 101st Airborne um, during the Vietnam era. Wow. And he went through an incredible amount of testing and trials and experiences, but yet was never in Vietnam. Huh. Um, he was a personal bodyguard for General Westmoreland. Wow. He was a personal bodyguard for the first African American who uh, attended school in Mississippi. Um, he had been in a couple of different helicopter crashes and survived both. Uh, he has, there are so many experiences he was part of that are, that he still reveals today at the age of 81, he will come up with an experience that he went through and said, ah, I think I can tell you about this now. Like, what, what's going to happen if I tell you? <laughs> what else could have happened to him? Wow. Right. That's true. And, you know, I, I read a lot of books about leadership. I don't think I've read anything that can touch the life experiences my father had 
And yeah. so if there's anybody listening today that said, I want a really unique story to write about, I have one that you will not believe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, maybe dad should write a book on top of all those other careers right. he's pursued. Right. Were you a good student in school, Jim? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Why know, was Brad, that? <laughs> what's interesting is I love to learn. I so much love to learn. But in my high school days, I didn't want to learn. And yeah. it wasn't until the advent of such things as the History Channel, where, where the history of, of humans and our world came to life in a more imaginative and visual way. That's when mm. learning became really fun. And uh, so as much as I do enjoy reading at that time in life, I unfortunately did not apply my efforts as I should. Yeah. Well, you probably weren't that interested in what was going on. I mean, that's so typical <laughs> that's right. with a lot of kids, right? When you got those subjects you're interested in. Right, and, uh, did, did you come to Christ early in your life? Was that something that you did as a kid or again, something that happened a little bit later? Well, I, I was baptized in the fall of 2018. Okay. Oh, excuse me, not 2018, 1998. Okay. Uh, All right. 18, <laughs> oh my gosh. Let's go back a few more years. It was in <laughs> Eight, or 1988, 1988. Um, I was 17 years of old. I had uh, of age. I was researching for a couple of years. You know, I grew up in the church, knew about prayer, all those things. And but I took a couple of years and really did some research. I, I read the Bible from front to back, and most of that was a good event until I got to Revelation and got stuck for about six months. <laughs> uh, um, and there was a book that was coming out or had already come out and it said 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988. Oh my gosh. And though I didn't read the book, uh, it didn't fear me into becoming a Christian. It right. helped me understand what am I waiting for? Why yeah, don't I start right. tearing down these human walls of thought, uh, and allow the Holy spirit to direct where I go. Yeah. And so I gave my life to Christ in September of 1988. Awesome. That's correct. That's fantastic. So uh, through your high school years, um, you'd mentioned, you know, a little bit of sports. What were some of the other things that you got involved with? Or were you involved in some of the church groups or other things, uh, you know, that, that that took your mind away from those studies that you <laughs> obviously weren't that interested in? Right. Well, to be all honest, again, I was definitely voluntold by my parents to attend certain things. But of even when I did go, I remember coming home and they'd ask, well, how was it? And I'm like, I don't know. It was okay. It was fine. But actually, I enjoyed it. You know, I had great friendships and camaraderie. Loved that some great lines of, of thought from the, a couple of uh, youth ministers I had growing up that, that were, they weren't the hellfire and brimstone. They were more of the challenging of the mind and the heart to truly think through your actions and your day-to-day right. life and what that means and, and what kind of response per each action or non-action that you take. Oh, uh, right. So, so yeah, definitely involved that way. And then one of the biggest things was, uh, you know, I wanted to play more sports at school, but there was somewhat of an innate feeling of guilt because my dad was working full-time on the railroad at the time. And I knew that there was, there were crops in the field. There was weeding that needed to happen and, and sure. you know, plowing and tilling and planting. And, and so I did want to come home and help the family farm. And then on the weekends, it was, uh, I can tell you again, with my mother being a caterer branch, I'm not exactly sure how many, but I would say I've attended more than 300 <laughs> weddings and anniversaries, and yet I never saw the wedding take place. <laughs> Always behind the scenes, helping mom That's out. That's right. Yeah, but it certainly instilled upon us um, hard work, fervor, 
doing a good job at all times and and uh and, and maybe they didn't make much money at it which they didn't they they didn't mom didn't charge enough still doesn't today yeah. uh, but uh it was it was a good uh, i guess you called it that honest uh work living right right well and you've been an entrepreneur most of your life and, and we're going to talk about your professional life in a minute and but you know in the early days did that come to fruit in other words were there you know the ubiquitous paper route or you know selling christmas cards at that time of year or other things that you did to raise money or, or was it helping mom out behind the kitchen <laughs> helping with her entrepreneurial things Oh, uh, you know, my parents would, uh, you know, provide me a little funding once in a while, but really funding in our family was you have a house, you have clothing, you have food. What more do you need from working hard with us? But yeah, we, we've given uh, you the basics. So you want anything extra, you go out and earn yourself, right? Yeah. I think one time dad said to me as I was a little, being a little bit mischief, um, mischievous, he took out his belt and he said, I'm not planning to use this, but I can. And I just want you to know where your place is. <laughs> <laughs> and where the belt is as well, right? Yeah. I love it. I love it. But go back. Two quick little uh, stories yeah. in regards to that maybe beginning entrepreneurship. When I was probably in the 10, 11 years of age, uh, I heard about a, I think it was a muscular dystrophy was trying to raise money in our area. And so oh, I yeah. took off on my, my little bicycle and I lived out in the country and I had a, a Folgers can. And I went house to house to house, and I did that for maybe one or two or three straight days and ended up raising about $64 in coin, wow. um, you know, at that time was probably a, a nice amount. And I remember giving it to my mom and saying, Mom, here I go. I think I've got $64 in here. What is my cut? <laughs> <laughs> How do I get, where's my administrative fee, right? That's right. Where's my administration fee? But obviously, 100% of that, I promise, was turned over. And and then in probably, I guess it was around 10, or see, I was around 13 years of age, 13 or 14, I started to have some thought about, oh my gosh, what happens after high school? I hear people right. go to college, and yet nobody in my family had ever gone okay. for a full four-year degree. Yeah, your older, older siblings neither, correct? Right. And they'd gone to yeah. college, but it wasn't necessarily for a full degree. Yeah, yeah. And I remember going to my dad and we had been grain farmers for years and years, both sides of the family, multiple generations. And I said, dad, I got an idea. What if I raised pigs? Well, the, the thought here was I'll raise pigs. And I did. I started off with dad. Dad loaned me enough money to, to purchase 50 piglets. Wow. And I would grow them into, you know, larger pigs. And of course they would, they would reproduce and I'd have more pigs and I'd sell them off and and, uh, you know, put money aside for college. And uh, again, I don't know what my age was. Maybe it was 13 or 14. But at that time, I actually started my first company wow. um, and a graphics arts, uh, arts teacher at, at uh, the high school I was or in the middle schools and helped me form that company. And the, <laughs> and the name of the company was Making Bacon. <laughs> I love it. That is so awesome. Oh my goodness. At, so at 13, 14 years old. Oh, that's wonderful. And how long did you operate that business? Oh, for probably four or five years. And then wow. it was time to, uh, to uh, move on to uh, late high school and into college. And, and yeah. I, I was positive uh, mom and dad didn't want to take care of the, the pigs when I was away. <laughs> and, and were you able to sock some money away from college and have some spending money to boot? 
Not near as much as I was hoping to. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of extra vacant too, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's amazing to find out just how much hard work goes into, you know, running a farm as well as taking care of livestock. And you get a check at the end of the day and you're like, that's it? Really? (laughs) (laughs) So so you went to Milligan University. Uh, Why did you choose uh, that institution? No, sure. So, yeah, Milligan's tucked away in the northeast corner of uh, Tennessee near Johnson City. Uh, And back in mid high school years, probably junior, sophomore, sophomore, junior year, a very good friend of mine from church and I were talking about college and what we wanted to do. So we did a little research and we we came across an article out of U.S. News um, that was talking about the 10 top uh, private, I'll say liberal arts colleges in the country. Mm. Yeah. And at that time, Milligan College, now Milligan University, was listed as one of those top 10 for law, wow. uh, medical, business, and I think it's marketing and computer science. There are like five categories. And so we both, uh, we went down there, we got to check it out, fell in love with the campus. And I think we fell in love more with the idea of just being a little bit away from home and yeah, still being right. a, a day's drive. <laughs> um, so, so that's where I ended up at. That's great. That's great. And um, were you able to get a scholarship or, you know, was that something that you were able to afford or mom and dad's help? How did you finance that? Well, let's go back to an earlier uh, conversation about did I do well in school? <laughs> <laughs> There's a direct link with your grades in high school and and, and the uh, scholarships that do or do not come. Cer- certainly think anything academically. That's true. Right, yeah. right. Uh, I was blessed to at least uh, I received a thousand dollars a year off of our tuition. Tuition at that time was eight or nine thousand dollars. Yeah. And that was called a presidential scholarship. Uh, And then I definitely worked um, about 20 hours a week on campus throughout my my four years on campus as work study. Cool. Excellent. Cool. And uh, went on to get a a bachelor of science degree. And what what did you specialize in? Well, I started in law. Uh So. I, I have a very creative mind as well as um, people have told me on various boards that I've been on that that I see things from a very unique perspective. I'll have the standard perspective, but I seem to be blessed with an opportunity to look at things in such a way that most people aren't looking at it, a different right. set of glasses, so to speak. Right. So I started in law thinking, yeah, I'm going to be in the courtroom. I'm going to be the Perry Mason uh, <laughs> drama, and I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And after about a year, uh, they then finally released the reading syllabus for the next four or all three years. And as the pages unfolded before me, literally, I thought, I really don't want to read all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't hold your level of interest. No. So I actually switched then to a a degree in business uh, and computer science with a a minor in marketing, a double minor mm-hmm. in marketing, business science, or excuse me, mm-hmm. computer science. Awesome. And what was that first job you took out of college? Uh, my first job, uh, the first job that was offered to me was to come work for Walmart. And if I may bend your ear on this, it was it was quite a unique opportunity. But uh, during my junior year, I had a, a business professor that's just really astute. I wanted to make sure his students are truly following um a business career course, not based upon books, but how their mind thinks and what right. makes them smile when it comes to working for an organization or building a brand. 
And he pulled me aside after class one day and says, you're a very unique individual. I thought, well, that's a nice way to say it. Uh, <laughs> he said, I want you to do something. I said, what's that? He says, choose a company and write a strategic growth plan for that company. And I was the only student he asked to do this. So at that time, we're talking it's 1991, maybe. There's no internet yet, right. uh, so to speak. There's, you're going to the library. You're reading magazine articles and newspapers and, and so forth. But I put together a strategic growth plan for a small company out of Bentonville, Arkansas called Walmart. Ah. And I hand addressed that, that uh, uh, envelope and mailed it off to Bentonville and uh, didn't have any, you know, nothing took place until a month or so later. I'm in class and a student comes and whispers in my ear, the dean of students, Mr. Derry, would like you to come down to the office. And I said, okay, class is over. So she says, no, he needs you to come down right now. <laughs> I thought, oh, oh, <laughs> what happened? I'm, like, I'm thinking I'm a residence assistant. I'm still a little ornery, but uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so anyway, went down there and there's Mr. Uh, dean Derry at his desk. And another gentleman of, of stature in the most beautiful three-piece cut suit I've ever seen in my life. And Dean Derry says, Mr. Miller, this is Mr. So-and-so, and I'm going to let you two have some chances to speak. And he walks out, and I'm, wow. I'm quite nervous. You have no idea who it is, right? Could That's be an correct. FBI agent as far as you know, right? Right. So this, gentleman, <laughs> this gentleman looks at me, and before talking about anything, before introducing himself, he says, Mr. Miller you've written a strategic growth plan and mailed that off to Walmart. Did you not? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, I need to know, where did you get that information? And I said, I, I, something I put together. And, I said, and he got very stern. He said, I need to know, where did you get the information? <laughs> I, I didn't said, want to believe it. I said, I, I thought if I owned Walmart, how would I grow that brand in the 90s and early 2000s in the United States? And I said, I literally just put down, here's what I would do if I was doing this. Yeah, And he looked at me a third time and he actually put his finger in my chest. And he said, where did you get the information? Oh my goodness. And I, said, I promise you, this is just what I came up with. It's just my thoughts. I'm sorry. I don't know. You know, I'm wow. scared. Yeah. And then geez. he smiles and he says, have a seat. I am so-and-so with Walmart. You've put together a strategic growth plan that's about 95 to 98% accurate with <laughs> our goal and vision. Wow. Would you like a How job post college? <laughs> that is an amazing story, Jim. Oh my goodness. And you accept it. I well, college is over. <laughs> we connected. And I said, before we before I say yes to anything, I want to know what my plan, what your plan is for me, the strategic right. growth plan for James Miller. Yeah, Where am I the first right. year, third, fifth, tenth, and so forth? And their actual plan was based upon what I had put in writing to them, they thought the best idea for me or best use of me was to first of all, send me to the East Coast to straighten out, if you will, an area of that country of that state. And then it was going to be on the set, off to Seattle, Washington. They talked about maybe back to DC area or something, something along the East Coast. And I said, I, I really love and appreciate that. But I had vowed to my parents, I would come home for at least a couple of years after college, help dad wrap up some farming things. Yeah. And uh, so I declined. So what was that first job after that? <laughs> well, <laughs> it went back home, well, I guess, right? Well, correct. So I moved back home and I applied for a sales position for the world's largest popcorn company, which is Weaver Popcorn. 
Okay. Uh, privately held and still family owned today. There were 1,200 applicants for one sales position. They narr- narrowed it down to myself and one other, and they gave it to the other person who oh my God. was a fabulous young lady. She deserved it. I'm, I'm proud of what she did with her her her, uh, her time at Weaver Popcorn. And so I went home with my, my tail between my legs. Mm. And about three weeks later, Weaver con- contacted me again. They said, we have another position that you are not suited for, but we want to interview you for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So remember, you know, Brent, I'm right out of college. There isn't right. anything I cannot do, right? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So I went through uh, about uh, two or three days of very intense interviewing where you sit in this chair for six to eight hours and they have three or four people come in for a couple hours. They leave. Another group comes in for a couple hours. They leave. Another group comes in. Just firing questions right and left. At the end of the the interview process, they said, look, we're looking for a co-chief marketing officer to oversee one of our divisions. They need to have at least three to five years marketing experience. Um, packaging, product innovation, packaging design. They need to be over, be able to oversee regional salespeople as well wow. as sales territories themselves and work with our senior leadership here in the company and report directly to one of the senior leaders and the owner of the company. Jeez. We think pretty you can big, do that. Pretty big job for a 22, 23-year-old. <laughs> huh? My goodness. You got that right. They yeah. said, we think you can do that. And of course, uh, I accepted the offer. Um, I was blessed to have three incredible years at the brand, working 60 to 70 hours every single week, um, inventing. Uh, I invented a, a product that actually took uh, 24% uh, share of the marketplace in its very first year. Wow. And uh, I was just blessed. Uh, but then after, after that three years, I was running pretty ragged and and uh, took another opportunity that had actually sought me out. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And did you have any leadership responsibilities in that first role at Weaver, or were you all a, an individual contributor for the most part? It was it was a unique opportunity. So there, like I said, I was a co-chief marketing officer. So there was yeah. already another gentleman there who had uh, seniority. And together, we ran an, in, an inside team. And we also had an uh, an exterior operational or sales force as well, five or six people across the United States. Uh-huh. And we did that together. He gave me certain tasks that I would run with, with those people and meet with them individually and tour with them and travel and talk about what I'm trying to develop. As well as in that leadership, I had the entire country of Canada and every single client we had in the entire country of Canada and some of the United States. I ended up having about 330 clients. Wow. And the leadership, I think, was it was we hadn't I don't think in, in the leadership realm, people had really used this terminology yet. But what it was, was empowerment leadership. Sure. Right. Right. And he would empower me to go and do as good as I could, but also make mistakes. And then when I made mistakes, we sat down, we talked about them how we might not make the same mistakes again. Yeah. Wow. And so I truly was shaped by that experience. Fantastic. And not shortly thereafter, you started Vision Investment Group, right? I think that was back in 1998 or so. Tell right. me, you know, a little bit of the 
foundational thinking behind that? I mean, did you come out of Weaver thinking, yeah, you know, this isn't bad. Hey, it's a family run company. Maybe I need to kind of, you know, set my own self up in a, in, in a job and see where that goes or, or what were your thoughts at that stage? You were what, maybe 24, 25 years old by that step, by that time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I took on another role for about, uh, I think 16 or 18 months for a, a company that, that leased and sold, um, they call it yellow iron. These were like, look like bulldozers, right? That would bury fiber optic cable and also trucks that would, you know, hang fiber optic cable on lines and so forth. And was overseeing both sales and revenue and marketing for that company. And I actually brought that company uh, for the first time into more of the digital age through web-based uh, sales, marketing and, and, and cataloging and so forth. And, and a lot of sales travel and so forth. But after that period of time, I, I was eating at Subway three, four days every single week. I just love stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I'm one of those individuals, I, I'm not going to order the same thing every time. So one of my personal challenges in life, and it still holds true today, is I try to order something brand new every time. Wow. You know, maybe it's I decide to toast the vegetables instead of having them in raw form. I, I just, right. whatever it is. But so I went home. I was talking to a friend who knew of a guy who has two subways and he might be interested in selling them. Mm. One was in my hometown and one was about 30 minutes away. So we got to talking and well, as it comes, comes around 1998, I buy my first two subway locations and then spend a couple de decades turning that into over 50. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you were the ripe age of what? 26, 27 when you got in, when you got your first subway? Yeah, I was actually, yeah, I was 27 when I, when I signed the paperwork. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And, uh, then kind of went right into business and, and how many franchise, uh, locations did you have once that you were at your peak? No, uh, at my peak was 52. 52. Fantastic. 52 and, and across, across three different states. Three different states. Fantastic. Well, tell us, you know, maybe going back to some of those early years, gosh, you were pretty young, uh, hiring people that were probably younger than you, right? You know, a lot of the, you know, we, we've all been in a subway and <laughs> kind of know the the hourly shift workers. What, what were some of the leadership challenges you had during those early years? <laughs> well, obviously, uh, and I think this still holds true today, no matter your knowledge or your, your work experience or how much heart you have into it, there's going to be though those individuals who are older you thinking I don't know that this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> right. I've been around longer; he certainly can't know. So from day one, I didn't want to try to prove myself, as in prove them wrong. For me, it was prove to Subway and my various development agents that I'm going to run an incredible business. Yeah. And through the years, I've been blessed to be the franchisee of the year which to me comes about as having a very good team in place. Right. Uh, there's numerous marketing awards, operational awards, uh, sales records, awards, all kinds of awards. But it still goes back to I have the right people around me to make that happen. Yeah. And, and was it at Subway when you first really started managing people? Or did you also do that at... Uh... I think it was Nesco, right? The company that you right. were, that it was laying tables. When did you kind yeah, of take on that? So it was more so at Weaver than at, at Nesco, Weaver. but obviously yeah. in the subway side was, you know, every new manager um, I had a relation, uh, you know, business relationship with and provided expectations and checked in on them periodically through, you know, phone and, and face to face. Um, 
one, one thing I love to do, and I still do this today, Brent, when we bring on a new manager and I get a chance to meet with them face to face, I love to at, tell them this, this phrase. I say, I hope you make mistakes this year. Hmm. And they look and at they you look and say, you. what? <laughs> Absolutely. They have the most dumbfounded look on their faces. Uh. You want me to what? I say, I hope you make mistakes this year. Yeah. And I say that because I want them to try things we haven't. And if it sure. works, great. We'll implement it within the rest of the company. If it doesn't work, you've learned a way not to do it. And we'll yeah. also relay that to the rest of the team. Right. Right. Great. Gosh, you know, I, think I it was, love that. It, yeah. Henry Ford once said, it's one of my favorite lines. So, but Henry Ford once said, if you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've always got. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't believe our U.S. government has yet heard that phrase, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they change around too much, I think. I don't know. Right. Not a lot of not a lot of legacy learning there, but let's not talk about <laughs> we have a whole other podcast on that one, yeah. That's right. Um, so so as you as you grew over the last couple of decades, what other types of beyond the subway and obviously the huge success you've had there, what other, you know, types of business ventures did you pursue? Well, I've made some mistakes. I tried the uh, the laundromat business for a while and right. realized, at least at the time I had it, if I reported 100% of the uh, the coinage, I wouldn't make money. But if, if I were to withhold some of that coinage personally, I might make a little money. But mm. uh, I sold that off because I was definitely uneasy with that. Um, <laughs> that approach. All right. right. I was definitely uneasy with that. Uh, I got into a small pizza chain that was supposedly uh, going to be this next great, wonderful thing. And, well, they made quite a bit of money off of me. And now yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But I'm not <laughs> involved work. anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then really the, the greatest work experiences or, or learning experiences in my life have come from, I've been on over 19 different boards. Mm. I have worked with mentoring other um, companies, young business people, business owners, or teams within companies. And that is where true learning takes place. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think the most important things are when you're a mentor to others that you do? I think, I'd say that probably the most important thing is helping an individual realize who they are, mm. what they can accomplish, yeah. And then also to help them understand that when you want to accomplish something, don't just think, hey, I can do this myself. Because anytime you bring a team member in, you're not just building that individual or building yourself, but you're also building the team and really ultimately helps build the brand from within. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, love that. And and <laughs> thinking about, you know, some of the challenges at Subway, you know, I, I'm sure there were some really good days and some success, but also some of the things that, you know, looking back, you might've done differently. I any advice out there for potential franchisees that, uh, or franchisors in your part, uh, that, that might want to, you know, get into the business and, and, you know, thinking about, you know, what are the kinds of things they should be thinking about in order to be successful? Sure. Well, I will say this today. I am still a loyalist to the Subway brand, even though there mm. was some really rough periods, uh, both pre-COVID and during COVID. Yeah. Uh, but I'm a loyalist to the brand. I have faith in the brand. We do have a very good product. Um, and so I'll continue forward in that. But I think one of, I might throw a plug out there right now, Brant, that 
I do want to move on. My, my chief operations officer does an excellent job of running the day-to-day -day business, and I'm looking to find either other board work or other teams to, to lead and guide and shape or companies to run. But, right. but I will say, I, I will, as long as I can, I will still have some type of, of involvement with the Subway brand. But for someone wanting to become a franchisee, I think a couple of things you really need to take a look at is where's the marketplace today? Where's it going to be? Where do you think it will be during the time that you want to be involved in that franchise? Right. Uh, I think Howard Johnson's, you, you talk to, to somebody that's a millennial and you say, I don't have a clue who Howard Johnson's is. Who are you talking about? Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, and that's the case, they should still be relevant today, but they decided not to continue with relevancy with the generations that were coming. Yeah. So one thing I highly advise is take a look at what millennials want, need, and desire today, as well as Generation Z. And it is a, a totally different uh, mindset on what they do, want, need, and desire. Um, I was working with a, a group just last week, helping them develop a, a, an internal team. I said, one of the things you need to understand is millennials don't have the loyalty necessarily to brands that we may have as, a, say, a Gen, Gen Xer. I may say, I fly with American Airlines, and that's where I'm going to stay. I'm just going right. to be with American as right. much as I possibly can. Whereas a millennial Gen Z says, what's the best deal? If I get yeah. some points out of it, whatever. Or I'm going to follow a brand, not because of the brand, but because the brand has a specific charity that's close to my heart. Yeah, yeah. And Social then they'll have they'll be a loyalist because of that charitable uh, organization they have a tie to. And um, when you think about uh, Subway, I mean, tremendous brand, I, huge, huge Subway fan. I've always enjoyed it. If I'm on the road, you know, I love the fact that you can find them roadside so often now. You know, particularly with the, uh, you know, the various and sundry, uh, you know, uh, off the freeway types of locations that Subway's got over the years. But, but as a franchisee, you know, it's not your culture, right? I mean, it is a culture that you create within your own franchise group, but, you know, Subway has its own methods and you're expected as a franchisee to execute that. How do you do that? You know, when you're, um, you know, not necessarily the owner of that business per se, but really are, in, you know, have the responsibility for ensuring that that culture, you know, is, is executed and propagated across the, across the uh, whole company. Do, does the Subway corporate help you with that? I know you were involved in a lot of the different marketing committees and so forth, but how does that work in a franchisee franchisor situation? Oh yeah, right. And I, ha I have, I've, I've had great opportunity to oversee marketing budgets and strategies for Subways in the United States, Canada, Australia. Um, but Subway does lend some, some effort and some, some advice in culture building. But that still comes down to really the, each individual franchisee. And part of that's demographically. Mm. Uh, my stores that are in inner, inner cities, our culture and what we try to develop there is completely different than rural communities. And right. what I mean by that is, in our rural communities, we have young people that come in to work with us who understand what work is. Yeah. They understand what reliability and responsibility is. And we also, but then in some of our inner city restaurants, we have people that may have never had a job before and don't necessarily understand what it's like to, to have work and to have 
responsibility and to know that other people, including both customers and fellow team members, are reliable or, you know, upon you, reliant upon you. So you have to create your culture based upon that demographic model. But one of the things, and this is such a simple thing. So, so for millennials, Gen Z, the cell phone is probably the most important thing to them right now. Right. If they lose their wallet or a purse, it's okay. But if they lose their phone, that's the end of the world. <laughs> that's so true. And so for us, one of the things that we're doing is actually saying, you know what? You know, most companies say you can't have your phones there. You can't check them. We're taking the other approach of these are the people that we work with every day. Allow them, you know, 30 seconds, one minute, every you know, half an hour. Check your phone. Put it in your back pocket so you know right. exactly where it's at. That way you don't have to worry about somebody stealing. It's in your back pocket. We just ask you only check it once every, yeah. you know, say 15 or 30 minutes and not in view of a customer. Right. Give them the freedom to do what is so second nature. Smart. Yeah. Very smart. And I bet that was seen as a huge benefit, right? So unlike many of the other hourly jobs that the folks would be able to get at that age. Right. Yeah. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire, Jim? Oh, excellent question. So there's a few things. First of all, I don't look at an individual or we don't interview someone and say, do we think they can become great at making a sandwich accurate and fast? What we look for is smiles, mm. eye contact, yeah. right, personality and personability, because yeah. those are characteristics you cannot instill or necessarily teach or train. Right. We can train almost anybody. For the most part, <laughs> there's been a few miles, but can, <laughs> no names mentioned. <laughs> yeah, we can train just about anybody to make a sandwich, but we can't teach everybody to be genuinely engaging with our guests. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so one thing, and this is this is not my material necessarily, but I'd heard from a, a leadership development person years ago. I don't remember who it was, but he talked about our crew members, your, your employees being either turkeys or eagles. <laughs> Everybody wants an eagle, right? Because they're, they're majestic, they're strong, uh, they're leadership-like, they soar. Eagles are just, they're just that. They're eagles, and that's why they're called eagles. Right. But everyone out there has or ha continues to hire, at some point, turkeys. And those turkeys, doggone it, you may love on them as much as you want to. You may train them as much as you can. And they may pick up on a few things of flight. But they're never going to soar. Right. So yeah, at some point in time, you have to, quote unquote, cut your loss and say either I'm going to put that turkey in a position that's that they will thrive in turkey yeah, responsibility. Yeah, they don't have to fly. Right, right. Yeah. Right. But I can never put them with the eagles because they're never going to be able to get up as high. They're never going to be able to stay in the air as long as the eagles can and so forth. And um, I sh oh, boy, this is being a little facetious here, Brant, but just my, <laughs> just my wit coming out. So sometimes when we have a turkey that we realize we just don't have a spot for that turkey, I'll give them an application to McDonald's and say, that's where you belong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Jim, we're just about out of time, but we always have one last question we ask all our guests. And that's kind of what career and life advice would you give someone who maybe has the eyes on their own corner office in the future? 
a couple of pieces of advice. First is, and I didn't learn this until I was well into my career. Though you may love a company you're with for three or four years, if you're truly trying to get that corner office and you don't see that there's, there isn't a chance to get there, you may literally have to leave that, that company you love or that you put a lot of hard work in for that next opportunity. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to say jump, it's furthering your, your career. But in addition to that, if you are in a company and you really want to have that corner office, if the person you report directly to is not setting a plan in place and meeting with you periodically once or twice a year to help you get to that level you want to be or to that specific role and developing and training you there, you'll never get there. Your leadership has to be on board with getting you there and following through with that. Yeah. So true. And if they're not, then it's likely, uh, it's probably time to go. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, Jim Miller, CEO and founder of Vision Investment Group, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Brent, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 